Welcome to another episode of the Augmented Podcast. Augmented reveals the stories behind a new era of industrial operations where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. Technology is changing rapidly. What's next in the digital factory? Who's leading the change? What are the skills to learn and how to stay up to date on manufacturing and industry 4.0? In episode 68 of the podcast, the topic is industrial supply chain optimization. Our guest is Professor Yossi Sheffi, PhD and Director at MIT Center for Transportation and Logistics. In this conversation, we talk about what the future of supply chain holds. We discuss the role of tech, especially robotics and automation and discuss the need to improve but not get rid of just-in-time production. We talk about the China plus one approach to supply chain diversification, the use of scenario planning to prepare for long-term effects of guacamole demand, and we discuss which corporations have done well during the supply chain disruption and explore how supply chain startups uh, move in to solve supply chain challenges. Lastly, we discuss what the next decade and beyond might look like and ponder the macro forces that impact the supply chain. Augmented is a podcast for industrial leaders, process engineers, and shop floor operators. Hosted by futurist Thrun Arne Unheim and presented by Tulip, the frontline operations platform. Augmented, industrial conversations that matter. Professor Sheffi, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I am super excited, and also because you have allowed me to call you by your first name, so we're going to uh, go by Yossi from now on in the interview. Yossi, you have a staggering number of accomplishments in a field that nobody really knows, apart <laughs> from the experts, except as of this year, everybody exactly. has a feeling for supply chain. Exactly. Everybody sees the result when it doesn't work or when there are problems. It's a curious choice of fields back when you chose to work on it. So we'll cover that. So you, you have a bachelor from Technion in Israel. Yeah. I mean, this was back in the 70s. Uh, but then you made your way to MIT, PhD already back in 78. And you have been at MIT for a good while covering this topic. You've made it to six books. I know you're working on another one, obviously. You keep writing. Founder of five successful companies, we can you know get into some of the stuff that you've been doing. Now directing the MIT Center for Transportation and Logistics. Also, you, you're part of this very successful online effort, the MicroMaster, enrolling the staggering 460,000 students in almost 200 countries, and also opening, I guess, to cater for that demand. You all see, right? You've opened all these centers around the world because how could you teach that that amount of people? How do you explain getting into this field, supply chain? As most things in life, it was done randomly. I started my career studying basically operations research with application to transportation. And my early year, I work on transportation system. My first book was dealt with urban transportation planning. But looking at it from network analysis, how the network should be designed, should be operated, and got frustrated several years into it because I always suggested to governments in various cities how to improve the flows, how to improve traffic light, how to improve transportation. And little to nothing of this was actually implemented. As an engineer by training, I, I was frustrated. So I started applying the same basically mathematics, you know, the same network optimization techniques and so forth to uh, tracking companies, tracking operations. And lo and behold, I saw that people are actually adopting it. 
it was very satisfying. So that's where I started to build companies that build software, build new processes. And from dealing with trucking and rail mainly, I moved to the people who are responsible for this. And this is the shippers, the, the retailers, the manufacturers distributed, whose demand for goods sets up how the transportation companies have to, uh, have to operate. And I started thinking about procurement and where the goods and the parts are coming from. So started looking along what we call now supply chain. At the time, as, as you mentioned before, the name was not quite rolling off the tongue of too many people. But uh, you think about how did people breathe before oxygen was, was discovered? Uh, in the same way, things were moving before we termed supply chain, supply chain. Things were still happening. But you'll see this term, supply chain. So Keith Oliver coined it, I guess, famously now, uh, and he yeah. called it supply chain or supply chain management. This was back in 1982. And there is, of course, also a distinction between logistics and supply chain, which maybe you can explain. But as far as I understand it, logistics is more the actual moving of goods or the storage, and the supply chain is the entire sort of sourcing process. However, chain is a very strange metaphor because it implies that it is literally you know, a chain of events. Is that still a metaphor that you would use if you were coining the field today? I mean, the field okay. has more problems than changing yeah. the metaphors, but... Yeah. Let's start with the definition, talk about logistic versus supply chain. In our definition, the way we look at it, supply chain includes logistics, includes manufacturing. It's everything that happens from the if we're talking about a hard product from the mine to the consumer's home, back to recycling or whatever is done with everything that happens along this, uh, call it for a minute, chain. So you have to move, you have to store, you have to manufacture, you have to source, you have to process, you deliver, and worry about how to get it back. So it's a whole set of activities. You said chain is the right metaphor. Of course, it's not a chain. Chain is a, just a stylistic concept because, of course, it's a web. Even if you talk about a specific manufacturer, they have thousands and tens, sometimes tens of thousands of suppliers, and those suppliers have their suppliers, and those suppliers have their supplier suppliers, and so forth. So it's a huge web that expands backwards. And by the way, if you look at the distribution, it expands forward because from that supplier, it will go either to warehouses, to uh, retailers, or directly to homes. And then there's, of course, not only one original equipment manufacturers or manufacturer, many. So, of course, it's a web. But for explaining what's going on, the metaphor is very useful. For example, if you try to explain now what is going on at the United States port, at the, at the port of Los Angeles, it's easy to explain, okay, a container starts from the inland China and moves to the port and gets on a ship. The ship goes to LA and then start waiting. Then the container is offloaded, has to go on a truck, has to wait for a chassis, has to go on a train. There's a whole set of activities that it's easy to understand it, describe as a chain. When you start doing real analysis, of course, you look at the network. So I guess the same thing happened with transportation. Some people say, well, we know transportation is also kind of implying that you're taking something from one place to another, whereas mobility, I guess, implies this back and forth movement and zooming around, not necessarily back and forth, but you're just moving around as much as you're moving from one place to another. Yeah, we usually use the term mobility when you're applying to people transportation. And right. you use, use freight transportation applying to cargo. So everybody has their own term. 
So beyond these terminology issues, what are the trends or the the real important things in terms of optimizing supply chains that you think uh, people should keep in mind? I've just come off reading one of your books, The New Abnormal, where you address these things, right? Because in this book, the immediate topic is in the middle or or post-COVID and and what started to change during that process. But, But more so, I think you're discussing issues that were always around, having to do with kind of resilience and flexibility. What, what are the most important things over the last few years that people who are trying to optimize their own supply chain, what, what are they focused on and what should they be focused on? <laughs> That's a big question. And I wrote three books about it. But yeah. all my books, in some sense, aside from the first one, which is a book for PhD students at MIT, all my business books are dealing with several aspects of the same issue. How do you make the supply chain better? Right. When we use the term optimizing, we usually mean aided by tech or something, but just getting it better. Yeah. And the question is, what are the challenges and what is the environment like? If you look at the basic book, you know, Inventory Management 101, it starts with how uncertain is demand. Demand is usually what we thought about always. The uncertainty is mostly in demand because the production was mostly local. I'm talking about the 40, 50, 60 years ago, before the globalization movement started uh, really taking hold. And the problems usually were demand. It was hard to plan what's going on. So you, the question is how much inventory to keep. And there are some formulas and relatively simple formula to explain how much inventory, where to keep it, and so forth. Now, when you start talking about globalization and companies not being vertically integrated, which means started the movement of focusing on core competencies. So companies just do what they do best. This was the mantra 20, 30 years ago. And to do this, companies started to use, move many of their operation to suppliers. And companies actually sometimes spun off suppliers and in fact, encourage suppliers to deal with competitors so the suppliers will be able to get scale and be able to invest in innovation and everybody will be better off. But at the same time, they were pressing the suppliers to cut costs all the time, which is much easier when it's not your people and somebody on the outside. So with this pressure, suppliers started looking for the lowest cost countries. They started moving to China. China, of course, opened in 1978, the World Trade Organization, and started investing and started acquiring Western technology in many ways, some more straightforward than others, but they became just better. So now the problem was moving goods all over the world. In my first book, I was looking at the one of the old chips, and this was a 1995, looking at one of the early Intel chip, and this was crossing the Pacific six times from the time that the chip started until it got inserted into a computer. Because every time it moved to a different plant that was specialized and the best in that in certain level of the operation, certain stage of building the chip. And same thing, there's a famous book, Travels of a T-shirt, not mine, but very good book, that talk about all the movement from the time that the cotton is grown in Texas until it is sold in a store in Texas. But meanwhile, it goes to China, it goes to South America, it goes all the the process of putting together a T-shirt. 
So, and of course, much com- more complicated product like, uh, you know, high-tech product, computers, avionics, airplanes, whatever, a lot of movements. So then the optimization became, first of all, understanding what is happening in the supply chain, the emphasis on uh, what we call transparency and visibility, understanding, okay, what is happening to the suppliers so you can predict any disruption or any problem that will happen to you before it actually happens. Then in the last few years during the Trump administration, even before, a lot of tension started taking place, mainly between China and, uh, and the U.S., but it's affecting all Western countries. So we started to have, when the Trump administration started to have all the trade restrictions, which meant that one has to take this into account, and maybe it became more and more expensive to make something in China. So there was the uh, political tensions Many other forces like uh, global warming, there's a lot of pressure on companies to start reducing their carbon emissions. Lots of effort in order to make sure that we don't have cybersecurity attacks. There were some famous ones just last year in the United States hmm. when we saw that the cyber attack can actually influence the physical economy when a colonial pipeline was shut for a few days, creating panic buying of fuel. So all of these things are creating pressures. And the issue with optimization is that it's not one way to run it. To be effective, you need to be very dynamic in terms of adjusting your network, your processes to the current pressure, to the coming pressure in the near future. So if there's now increasing tension between China and the US, tariffs may go up. We'll see what's what's happening. China may put new restrictions on rare rare earth minerals. Okay, one needs to adjust for this. Uh, Of course, we just have the mother of all disruption in the COVID-19, something that was very hard to prepare for, but some companies did better than others. Yeah, let's talk about some of the implications of COVID for a moment. So one thing that you cover in your book was that the passenger airline traffic slowdown actually also slowed down freight. And that was not really known to me. I didn't quite realize that dynamic. Why is that exactly? Because a little more than half of the cargo that flies goes in the belly of passenger airlines. So I think that they're waiting for me to take off, but they're actually waiting for their very high valuable cargo. You bet. And if you sit uh, kind of behind the wing and look down uh, on the runway, you'll see that they are loading not only suitcases, but cargo in the belly. And this cargo, as I say, it's not small. It's over 50% of the air cargo in the world. And there's just not enough capacity in terms of cargo plane. By the way, I don't know if you saw the announcement that Airbus is now building new cargo planes based on the latest airplane, on the A950. They're just building cargo planes. They just announced in the Dubai Air Show that they sold several of them. This is an area where Boeing used to dominate. So now other companies are getting into cargo because they realize that with all the disruptions that happen, even though it's much more expensive to fly, and furthermore, it emits much more carbon, it is still fast and... We saw it in Glasgow. I always say that with regard to global warming and fighting global warming, when everything's said and done, there's a lot more said than done. (laughs) 
Well, and partly because the perception, I guess, in the system among most actors is that the system has to go on. And even people who are avid environmentalists, when they don't get their Christmas gifts, they might get upset. So, yes. So they're okay if Walmart will fly them as long as they get the business. <laughs> yeah. So let's move to some of the best practices or, or sometimes lack thereof. Logistics providers, service providers, or, or these sort of third-party logistics players, why are they not fully digitized? Because I, I've understood that, well, each level of this supply chain that is very complicated, they have different levels of digitization. And, and you said technology is you know, obviously one solution that people come up with to kind of improve and further make efficiencies happen. Why is it so that different parts of the supply chain, they, why didn't they all digitize at the same rate? Were the investments not worth it for some parts of the supply chain? First of all, let's enlarge your question. Business in general is not totally digitized. It's not supply chain. Universities are not totally digitized. Supermarkets are not totally digitized. Let's first of all admit that society is not digitized totally and is not ready to be. It's not clear that it will be. Let me give you some examples specifically about the supply chain. You know, with the pandemic, when Zoom and everything else started to be a thing, I mean, who ever heard about Zoom before the pandemic? But we started to have more and more video calls. People thought, okay, air travel, especially business travel, will never come back. It's not true because... Mm -hmm. Look, when you have a supplier in China, and people still have suppliers in China and Vietnam and Malaysia and South America, whatever, to close a deal, to make a deal, to keep the deal going, it's not enough to do a video call. You need to fly out there and negotiate the deal and have, have dinner with the other party and talk about your kids or grandkids or spouses and what you like to drink and whatever, create relationship and create trust. It's very hard to create trust online. Trust is created at this stage, at least, by people talking to each other. So there's a lot more that is done in terms of face-to-face. -face. But coming back to why it's specifically hard to digitize the supply chain, because here, let me give you another example. How many apps are there to show that you are vaccinated? There's no worldwide app. There's no standard. So right. in many of these cases, since there are so many actors involved in supply chain networks, you need to standard. I wanted to get to one standard because I guess it's the paradigm example for you and, and others, right? What's known as the ISO TC-104, the freight container standard, I guess 1961. That was a game changer. Yes. Because, well, the story, I guess, is kind of complicated. But at some point, there was an alignment between mostly, I guess, the Europeans and the US yes. for this container standard, and it was painful because they didn't all have the same standard. But the moment they did, what happened? The moment they did, the world changed. Because the ability of filling a container in Hamburg and getting it on a truck or on a rail and getting it to the ship, and the ship was built for certain sizes, either 20-foot or 40-foot containers. And it's amazing for me that the containers are not measured in the metric system. But most of the world is using show the influence of the U.S., but it doesn't matter. It's 20-foot container, 40-foot container. So the ships are built this way, the trucks are built this way, the rails are building this way, and you can move the whole thing from the uh, supplier in the outskirts of Hamburg to somebody in Kansas City without opening the container. It moves from one mode of transportation to another. So the cost of uh, instead of loading and unloading, loading and unloading at each stage of the way, 
You just move the entire containers and the cost became less than one-tenth of what it was before. So, Yossi, my, my question from that is, that was 1961. Yes. Why don't we have any other great example, maybe you do, of innovations, standardizations in the supply chain area since 1961? 61, that's a long time ago. I was certainly not born. Maybe you were born. It is a while back. It is a while back. And are there any potential game changers like that left in the arsenal? What, what would be the container standard of 2022? Well, let's not forget other standards were successful. The number one is the internet. Sure. You can still send me email and I can send you email and the system works. You know, we can talk uh, on a video and the system works. Right. So there are many successful standards in the technology area. And so it's not true to think that since the containers, there were no. And of course, it was particularly useful for people in the supply chain because they work all over the world. Yeah, I guess I was thinking more about physical standards that, I you, that would simplify a supply chain. I understand. But, you know, a lot of the expense and effort today involves around information exchange. The right. information exchange, this was huge problem in 1961. It's not a problem today. Information exchange became very, very fluid and fast. Um, it's interesting, for example, that we don't have a single air container. The um, igloos that, that fly are based on the airplane. So <laughs> the bigger airplane, a bigger one, and so forth. Because we don't have a standard-sized airplane. So we mm -hmm. don't have a standard-sized igloo or the air container. But what would we need now that we have all this? The, I tell you, the problem is standards are so good that we have many of them. For example, you see that some countries are moving to create their own internet standard. China is moving to create its own internet. Russia is moving to create its own internet. You see societies that are moving away from having a standard because they're trying to close themselves off from the world. Mm -hmm. um, it would not make sense for them to change something like the container standard or the email standard because they still need to trade with the rest of the world. But uh, other things are encroaching on, on, on standard like political views and uh, mm -hmm. you know fear of certain regimes from fearing their own people, basically. So they want to limit the information. I guess one of the things I, I perhaps was thinking of, and, and it is, of course, unfair to compare e-commerce of consumer goods to supply chain in the industrial setting because it is immensely more complicated. But I'm just speaking on behalf of consumer expectations. So, you know, the consumer in a Western country and certainly in mainland U.S., today expects that if they have a, a Prime account or some other account from a leading e-commerce provider, you would actually get it same-day delivery, maybe even less. And for bigger things, more rarer goods, maybe you know within two, three days. A lot of that is not always happening in the industrial space. Now, obviously, some of it is because some components you know, have moved on to this kind of commerce uh, supply chain. Is it within sight to get more of industrial components on this similar kind of track? Or, or are we just dealing with two sort of rare components that are much harder to put on the same kind of expectation. Because I'm, I'm trying to dig on, sure. on, on this issue of just-in-time, which, you know, was so sure. fashionable, and it sounded like such a fantastic idea, and you were onto it, you know, how everyone moved to just-in-time, and then now suddenly it comes back to bite us. And, and there are a lot of pundits, you know, are like, oh, well, it, we should have never done it. You've sort of been uh, on the other side saying, yeah. listen, there are immense benefits 
explain this argument to me? Because I think you're often misunderstood as like, you're sort of battling the anti-innovation train, but you're saying something different. No, what I'm saying is that most people who say JIT is dead, don't understand supply chain, don't understand JIT. And with all due respect, it's people who are looking at the silver bullet. It's mostly honestly, people in the media. You don't see too much among supply chain professionals. Maybe some IT people, right? Or software type people or people who are swayed by, you know, emerging technologies at the surface of it. People who are not in supply chain, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a lot of people, you see. Which is a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. (laughs) Hey, a lot of people say the elections were stolen. So what? It doesn't make it so, right? I understand. So precisely, JIT, why, why is it a bad idea to abandon it? Okay. First of all, Let's just state my view that people will never abandon it. Or not never, I never should never. But people are not going to abandon it in anything in the next few years or in the next many few years. First of all, more general, the Toyota production system, which just in time is part of it, is responsible not only for low cost. Low cost is not the reason for just in time. It's the result of just in time. Just in time was there in order to increase quality of products. Because what happened when you have a lot of inventory let's say, of parts, lots of parts inventory, the way we used to have inventory was just delivered and people kept a whole pile of parts. Then let's say you have some problem with a part. A part is subpar, doesn't work. First of all, you may discover it after you work a whole lot of, let's say, automobile or whatever is the the finished product. And then what happened? You'll need to rework it or you don't discover it and it goes to customers and you'll need to pay warranty claims. And even worse, you get reputation for lousy automobiles. Second, it actually creates resilience because with little inventory, you're tied much stronger to both your supplier and your customer because everything has to move within very small tolerances because you don't have a lot of inventory. So you have to make sure that you communicate with everybody all the time, which means that you can respond much better and they respond of the whole supply chain, not only of a company. And you always need the whole supply chain to respond. And some people who are my age remember that we used to have, when Toyota came up with the system, and Honda and uh, other Japanese manufacturers adopted it immediately, we had voluntary quota on Japanese automobile because they were so good, the quality was so good, they were going to decimate the entire U.S. automotive industry. People learn from this, and the whole industry, not only automotive, but soft goods, you know, refrigerator, washing machine, computer, any product that has to be assembled from parts became a lot better. So a company that will abandon such processes will not be competitive. So I just don't see it. And sure, I talk a lot to boards of directors who are uh, full of people who are in marketing and finance and law and not with supply chain. And they try to put pressure on their CEO and supply chain people to move in this direction. And that's where the supply chain people usually call me and say, you must give a talk to the board of director or to the executive team. They are going the wrong way. So I'm sure some companies will do something, but I don't see it happening. So does that mean you see that this whole idea of diversifying the supply chain in and of itself is a bad idea? Or are you just no. saying, you know, establishing local inventory is a bad idea and, and abandoning China in and of itself, for example, is a bad idea? You, you were talking about China plus one strategies in your book, yes. which is sort of saying you kind of have to have a, a regionalized alternative. And, and you talk specifically about Europe using Turkey and 
U.S. using Mexico. I, I found that kind of fascinating. Is that a direction you're, you're seeing happening all around the world? Yes. I don't see people moving out of China. I see people putting new investments outside. Sometimes it's just Vietnam and Malaysia, and sometimes it's Turkey, Romania, and Mexico. Just, you know, balancing. But another point that I should really explain, when you say moving out of China, think about it. Go back to the first question that you asked me. Is it a network or is it a chain? It's beyond network. It's an ecosystem. It's suppliers and their supplier and their supplier and their suppliers and tens of thousands of those for each company. Until you go either, if it's an agricultural product, you go to the field. And if it's a hard product, you go to the mine. It's everything from the mine until you have a finished product. Many suppliers and warehouses and transportation and custom regimes and whatever. So it's a network. And the other thing that you point out, I think, in your book is if you're not in supply chain, you might be still fooled by thinking China's a low-cost supplier, meaning it's low quality. Oh, but yeah. it's becoming a highly sophisticated, partly because of the network you're explaining, but also because individual suppliers you know, in Shenzhen, for example, are very sophisticated. But the point that I tried to make is when you build an, a huge ecosystem in China, you may take what's called tier one supplier, the one that you buy from, you can take it out of China and put it in Malaysia or Mexico or Romania, but it doesn't matter because the bulk of the supply chain still stays in China. Suppliers, then supplier, then supplier, then supplier, they're still in China. And some of it is because we have rules and laws and regulations that will not ever allow us to get out of China. Take, for example, rare earth minerals that are used in every sophisticated product today, every technology-based product today. China has most supplies, you know, 80, 85% of the world with rare earth minerals. You know which country has more rare earth minerals than China? It's the United States. Right. But in the United States, environmental law don't allow mining for it. And by the way, I'm all for environmental law. Because I, I don't want to live next to a open mine, and the trucks and the diesel and the pollution and, and the disgusting landscape. But okay, so that's the cost. So we have to decide what we want to do here. It yeah. will be very hard to leave China. Also, don't forget one more thing. China is the second biggest economy in the world and probably will be first before long. So it's on market, it's on industrial market. But also it's on consumer market. So Western companies who want to sell to China, especially when China is becoming more and more nationalistic, they'll have to make it in China. Mm. So it's very hard to think about wholesale getting out of China. Let's talk about technology for a minute. Predictive forecasting, just to pick one area of optimization, right? The history of, of that area, what, what are the techniques and tools that you have seen throughout your career that have actually made a dent in, in true prediction? Because there, there are many ways to try to predict the market. All of these technologies, and you can start with linear, nonlinear regression, Box Jenkins techniques, go all the way to machine learning today. All of these techniques, all of them, suffer from the same shortcoming that cannot be overcome unless we have a time machine. And the shortcoming is that the forecast is always based on the past. So as long as more or less the future will act like the past, you can forecast the seasonality. People will buy more towards Christmas. People will buy more candies before Halloween and so forth. Okay, you can forecast this based on past behavior. However, when there's a fundamental change, like what happened during the pandemic or things that happened during the financial crisis, or when there's a big change in behavior of people, this all goes by the wayside. 
This is what you call whack-a-mole demand in your book. Uh, so how do you prepare <laughs> yeah. for that then? The fact that prediction models are very bad for this kind of thing. I mean, is it just still doing scenario analysis and, and having backup plans and spare capacity? Is, is that the only answer to it? Scenario analysis is good for long term. If you want to know what happened in five to 50 years, that's what you use scenario analysis for. Basically, you have to build a company that's agile and flexible, that can respond quickly in short term to these changes. And the trick is, this is easier said than done because it's not enough to have sensors in the ground, okay, to see changes that are happening. You have to believe them. Look at what happened in the United States. We started having the pandemic in, in Wuhan, then it moved to Europe, and the United States administration was still saying it's not happening here. The 15 days, it will all go away. And My guess is you you weren't of that category. You could even like pinpoint the days before it would show well, up. Well, not, not quite the days. If I could pinpoint the days, I would invest in the stock market and be a millionaire. So I, I did not. But, <laughs> but I could see, I, not only me, there are people who could see that this is going to be really bad and start understanding some of the implications. But most people did not. So even though data was there, it was in the news, it was in the BBC and CNN that Northern Italy had a disaster. If you, I don't know if you recall this, during March uh, in 2020, last year. In my book, I describe how a German researchers in January 2020 already discovered there's a transmission between not from animal to people, but between people and also between asymptomatic people. And she was ridiculed and derided by government. The Swedish government made a report that it cannot happen. She doesn't know what he's talking about and so forth and so on. So there are people who raise the alarm, but nobody wants to hear bad news. So One thing that's striking to me, Yossi, is, I mean, in my opinion, people with your type of expertise should have been on these scenario plannings for oh, future disasters. God. If you see what I'm saying, because they were all calling up infectious disease doctors who could say, you know, yes, I've had X five patients and this happens with the virus. It's really not about what happens with the virus, right? It's about the world disruption that you actually know about. <laughs> Tron, as they were parading Fauci and others in front of Trump and all this, you cannot imagine how many email and letters I wrote asking, where is the Commerce Department Supply Chain Task Force? Yep. Where is the Commerce Department Business Continuity Task Force? Right. They are non-existent. So look, the problem is that over time, we never develop expertise in this. I remember being, this was before the pandemic, being called for some reason, the commerce, the U.S. Commerce Department had some uh, working group, not a task force, it was called working group that had to report to the secretary about supply chain issues and preparing for supply chain disruption in the United States. It was in 2018. So there were people from uh, truck lines and railroad and ports and all of this, and I was the token academic, but uh, actually prepared a reasonably good report, which, of course, is still collecting dust on some uh, shelves in the bowels of the Commerce Department. And the worst thing is we have to build institutions that deal with supply chain, that understand supply chain. They're just trying to build it on the fly in the Biden administration, and it's not working very well because they don't have the relationship, they don't have the data. It's a long-term effort that I hope we'll start now. Yeah, well, I mean, you're pointing out that it's not just about the, the commerce, perhaps. But on the other hand, let's uh, look at the other flip side of the coin. Some companies managed, despite all the complexity, to do things well. Let's talk about that for a moment. Some of the large companies, and then let's move into some, some startups that are trying to make 
admittedly small progress so far, but what are some of the companies that you felt came out of the pandemic or are plowing through these difficulties with some amount of agility, whether because they prepared beforehand or because they just had a very good crisis mindset? What are some examples that you feel are, are exemplifying this sort of agile attitude? The big U.S. retailers are doing well, have done well, and are doing well. Walmart, Target, Lowe's, Home Depot are using their heft and their ability to get suppliers to pay attention to them. And they have the ability to, for example, right now, during the shortest, get their own vessels, get to small ports and get their stuff, while others, small retailers, cannot. So the big companies are using their ability to get suppliers to do their bidding, basically, and get the material and get the parts and be able to still supply the consumer or or the customer. It's uh, somewhat less successful in a B2B area, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> talk about it before, because you have the same supplier supplying a lot of competitors that are competing with each other. Many people are suing the suppliers because the suppliers cannot give them everything. The relationship are fraying. So um, we still have manufacturers that don't have enough parts and material to build their product. Hmm. What about on the startup side, if we move quickly to those, what are some startups that you have been um, either impressed with or that you think are, are contributing in this manner? There's MIT startups working on supply transparency. There's a bunch of startups obviously working on autonomy and autonomous driving and you know contributing to the supply chain by automation. Of course, all the robotic startups But then there's also information startups that are trying to basically create a better sense, not just for Walmart, right? Because Walmart has its own fairly advanced supply network, but that are trying to provide this on an industry-wide basis, more as an information product. Where do you see the value of startup innovation when it comes to supply chain? Okay. First of all, as long as you realize that 99% of them are going to fail, then mm-hmm. we all understand where we are. So it's hard to forecast. But let's talk about the area, not particular companies. Yep. So companies who are investing in uh, automation and uh, autonomous vehicles, they are still years away, and many of them will not be able to go the distance because at one point the VCs will stop funding them. Also, it will take a lot more time than people think to get actually autonomous vehicles on the road. We have almost autonomous. This is already happening. When you drive a Tesla, when you drive a Cadillac City 6, you can take your hands off the wheel, but you still have to have a driver and actually the system monitors the driver. I don't know if you know about how Cadillac does it, but we have several of these cars around to play with them and contribute to the software. But the Cadillac has cameras that look at your eyes, and the minute that your eyes are off the road, the steering wheel starts buzzing and moving around, and after a few more seconds, the car will go to the right of the road and stop. Yeah. because your eyes are not on the road. So it needs you there. And honestly, as long as the driver is there, the savings are not going to be substantial. So there are actually more augmentation technologies than they are oh, automation. Yes, augmentation technology are fun, and they contribute to safety. So I, I don't want to poo-poo them. I'm not, not poo-pooing them, but in terms of fundamentally changing the cost structure, the way containers change the cost structure of, uh, of moving freight, this is not, not even close. Where we do see a lot of automation robotics is in the warehouse. A lot of warehouse robotics and warehouses are starting to be a lot more automated. This actually is being pushed by what's happening in the pandemic and today, the lack of workers. So it's uh, hard to get warehouse workers. So you get companies invest more and more in technology. 
and in robotic, especially, I saw some amazing. This was the, even before the pandemic. I was uh, seeing a JD.com, a distribution center in Shanghai that used to have 400 workers, now has four. Totally automated. The same throughput with 1% of the workers. Hmm. So quite impressive. And as uh, BSF, the chemical company, has a lights out plant in, uh, in Switzerland, and they say it actually has a man and a dog. The man is there to watch over the equipment, and the dog is there to make sure that the man is not, is not going to touch anything. So it's, uh, <laughs> Well, is it going to replace all these workers, or is it going to no, free them up for other things? Uh, well, <laughs> this is a big question, right? A $64,000 question. Those workers who will want to invest and learn and company will invest in uh, educating and training their workers, yes, these workers will find something else. But the main fundamental change that happened before, but it's now accelerated, is workers will have to stop complaining and realizing that they are masters of their own weight. There is no reason today for most workers not to upgrade their capabilities when you can take any course online, when you can take any training online. It's irresponsible for workers to think that the company will always take care of them. They have to make sure that they take care of themselves by upgrading their capabilities, especially workers in places like warehouse or trucking or other profession that even a retail store. All of these people over time can be replaced by automation. And what the government has to do is to make this thing free and available and better and encourage people to upgrade their capabilities so they are not going to sit there and go on food stamps in the U.S. and go on government help, but be able to work. And by the way, some companies are doing it. Google itself said that it will uh, not pay that much attention to uh, university degrees, even from places like MIT or Stanford or Harvard, but to the capability of a person. And they have courses for six to eight months of teaching people to code to develop software. And they say, it's fine. These people can work for Google. They don't have to have a computer science degree from MIT. Hmm. So uh, far-sighted companies and companies, of course, who have money. I mean, uh, Google basically prints money. Companies like this can invest in the next generation and make sure that they don't have worker shortages. And it looks to me, Yossi, that you have more faith that large companies with uh, deeper pockets will be able to take this on kind of industry-wide as like a workforce challenge more than you think the government's regulations or stimulus programs are going to do this. Huh. What are the specific <laughs> things that you think governments around the world, not just U.S., could do beyond making training free and available? So that's a big ticket item, right? So we're talking about community colleges, I'm imagining, online training, other things. What specifically should the Commerce Department uh, or other departments, should there be a department of supply chain? I mean, the kind no. of systems dynamics problem that you're outlining, I mean, I'm using systems dynamics sure, 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 kind sure. of this MIT term, but where I think the problem lies is that the problem you're spelling out, it sounds so simple when you explain it, but it's not understood almost at all in certain regulatory circles. So, so where do we start? First of all, let's make sure that flooding the market with money like the Biden administration did is backfiring right now because the main reason for the shortages is too much money in people's pockets. So there's inflation, they're buying like crazy, demand is up, supply cannot keep up. So you have shortages and higher prices and all this. It doesn't work unless you do it very gingerly and they did not. Being as it may, long term, let me tell you a story, and this is a story from Israel, from the early days of Israel. 
1948, uh, after Israel got its independence, there was huge waves of immigration into Israel, from mostly from Arab countries. And most of them were not educated. And the prime minister of Israel, Ben-Gurion, at the time said, okay, we are not investing in this generation. We're investing only in the second generation, in the kids. We're not building houses. People lived for years. People lived in tents. And there were demonstrations in the streets. He said, no, no, no. We're only building schools and training teachers because long-term, that's the future. That's the reason today that you see Israel being a high-tech powerhouse. I mean, years of investment in education. Israeli universities are leading innovations and everything. By the way, same thing in South Korea, for example. The investment in education. In Japan, the investment in education. This is something that uh, in the U.S. we don't do. It's basically done better in in Germany in particular. But uh, in the U.S., we don't take the hard long-term solutions. And this is getting K-12 education better because it's all tied up to politics. There's so many problems. So we see what we get. We get uneducated workforce. And the U.S., I don't know, is way down in the uh, STEM in terms of you know, high school uh, students' ability to do math and physics and other sciences hmm. as compared to other countries. And people from the outside mistakenly look at places like MIT and Stanford and Harvard and, and, and others Clearly, the elite university, the U.S. is a huge society, so the top is still the top, of course. But the economy is not running on the top, it's running on the average and the bottom. So, Jose, taking all of this into account then, what is the future of supply chains? Let's be specific. If you look sort of 10 years into the future, it's not uh, something that academics uh, always promise to do, but you have and you are in some of your work. Taking all of these things into account, the relative kind of poverty, I guess, of long-term strategy in the U.S., some other countries around the world doing the right thing, arguably the European Commission perhaps stimulating countries to do some correct things in, in the industrial strategy there, isolated countries like Israel or South Korea doing the right thing. Where are we going to end up over the next few years? So, you know, play out COVID for a little bit, play out some of these startups working on this. Where are we ending up? Will there be massive improvements in supply chain? Is there whack-a-mole demand all ahead of us the next decade? Or is there any structure to the madness? I'll tell you why it's a tough question. Because I think it has nothing to do with supply chain. If you tell me where Taiwan will be in five years or 10 years, where would the U.S.-China relationship be? U.S.-Russia, you know, EU and Russia. I think global political forces will swap anything that we can do in business, not only in supply chain, in business, in business in general. But assuming that there'll not be a disaster on the magnitude of, of the pandemic and worse, thinking about, yeah, okay, let's talk about supply chain, but in the context of there are many, many bigger forces, another bigger force. Will Trump be back in 2024? Can you imagine? Yeah, I can imagine this. Well, if Trump is back, will that continue the nationalization of the U.S. supply yeah. chain? Yes, absolutely. And will create more, more tension with the rest of the world. And unfortunately, more tension with Europe. Look, I still remember, just in the, after the first year of the Trump administration, we put restriction on steel imports from Canada. And this was because he couldn't do it. He needed Congress to do it. But unless it's a national security issue. So Trump declare a national security issue. And I remember, you know, the Canadian prime minister on TV, I was in Toronto at the time, exasperated, saying Canada is a national security threat to the United States. 
What are you talking about? How can Canada be a national security threat to the United States? We've been with you on every war and every time. Where, where, where are your national security interests? So I, I don't know. I hope this will not happen, but who knows? It's uh, more and more trending to me like this is happening. Yeah, see, I, I want to ask you, just as a final question, who else do you trust for insight on this individuals, on supply chain and the future of supply chain, or, or even just supply chain data? Who are the individuals, institutions, consulting firms, I don't know, university labs, apart from your lab? Who else do you read and gain insight on supply chain these days? Because it sure. seems to me it's not a enormous number yeah, sure. of individuals. I, in terms of academic, I pay attention to Howley in Stanford, to some people in Harvard, pay attention to um, Marshall Fisher in University of Pennsylvania, Jan Fransu, a professor in uh, Tilburg, a Dutch university. These are just some of the people that I, that I listen to. But I also listen to people in the industry. I listen to Lynn Terrell, who is the chief supply chain officer of Flex. I listen to Dave Waller, who is the chief operating officer of uh, New Balance. Some people on the, there's an organization called Supply Chain 50 that puts 50 chief supply chain officers together several times a year. And again, I'm the token academic there. So um, some of the insights from these people is worth listening to because they have their hand on the pulse. Yeah, I mean, I guess one of the reasons I asked that question is that it seems to me to be such an underestimated field. And very recently, people have caught up to this issue. So the question is, what, what happens to the area? Does it necessarily mean more investment and better data? Or do you think uh, people are yes. going to forget again? Like once the system starts running, then they're going to say, yeah, yeah, luckily we fixed it. We are so advanced. Well, yes and no. <laughs> it's classic academic response, right? At this point, in the next year, two years, three years, people will still invest. People will still understand that this is a big deal. Mm -hmm. uh, but not only some structural changes, some uh, elevating of the supply chain function in companies reporting directly to CEO, having CEOs that come from the supply chain function, like actually Apple, Tim Cook was a supply chain officer working under uh, Stephen Jobs. Also, people start to understand that companies who we call retailers, like Walmart, are really supply chain operators. They don't make, invent anything. They just move it, store it, sell it. It's all supply chain. So people start to understand that it is a competitive advantage. It is uh, something that is important. So some of it will stay. How long will it play? I don't know. I always uh, remember they have a colleague in civil engineering who is an earthquake engineer. And when there's an earthquake for the next six months, he is consulting rate are sky high and he's you know, in demand. And then people forget about it. So people forget about it. I, less than issues like uh, earthquakes, but it also depends on continuing disruptions. It's not clear that this case will be both the shortages now, the high prices will come down very quickly. They will come down. They will happen, but it will take a while. And by then we have, we have new disruptions. It may be geopolitical. It may be cyber attacks. Who knows what? So we'll have to keep watch. As, as long as to keep watch, supply chain are the function that is most responsible for it. 
Yossi, it's been fascinating. Thank you so much for spending time with me. And uh, I'll be watching and maybe we'll check in if there's a major disruption. Again, we'll be one of the institutions checking back in with you. I'm sure we'll hear from you. So thanks. You have just listened to episode 68 of the Augmented Podcast with host Trun Arne Unheim. The topic was industrial supply chain optimization. And our guest was Professor Yossi Sheffi, director at the MIT Center for Transportation and Logistics. In this conversation, we talked about how to optimize industrial production and delivery, and we talked about the future of supply chains. My takeaway is that optimizing production is about more than fixing individual elements along a chain. The supply chain is by now more of a network, a system of interdependencies. Strikingly, technology is not even the most important part. It might never be. But innovation has its place and augmenting every piece of the supply chain helps us see what we need to do is to augment our understanding of the overall picture. Only then can policymakers, startup founders and supply chain professionals together enhance the enormously complex production and delivery of a multitude of goods and services along the industrial value chain. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode 50, The Last Mile of Productivity. Hopefully, you'll find something awesome in these or other episodes. If so, do let us know by messaging us. We would love to share your thoughts with other listeners. The Augmented Podcast is created in association with Tulip, connected frontline operations platform that connects the people, machines, devices, and the systems used in a production or logistics process in a physical location. Tulip is democratizing technology and empowering those closest to operations to solve problems. Tulip is also hiring. You can find Tulip at tulip.co. Please share this show with colleagues who care about where industry and especially industrial tech is headed. To find us on social media is easy. We are Augmented Pod on LinkedIn and Twitter and Augmented Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Augmented, industrial conversations that matter. See you next time.